Hey there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. If you haven't noticed already, I've been releasing two episodes per week as of late. During Melbourne's stage four lockdown, that went for about eight to 12 weeks, I went on a little bit of a recording rampage and tried to get as much content down pat as I possibly could with incredible guests from all around the globe. So I decided to get this information out to you guys sooner and that is why there is two coming out a week. I hope that you guys are safe and well during this situation that has affected everyone globally. For any new listeners out there, my name is Matt Sapala and I am your host. I'm a personal trainer and currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. I created this platform in the hope to empower you with knowledge and wisdom to make conscious health decisions that will ultimately see you thriving. I don't want to be your quick fix, I want to be your only fix and the guests on this show enable me to do so. This week's special guest is doing exactly that. Dr. Jenny Brockes is a lifestyle-based physician in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. She's living and breathing by her quote, and it was, prevention is better than cure, and I wholeheartedly agree with her on that. If us individuals can take ownership and responsibility for our own health, then there's no reason why we can't make more conscious, healthful decisions to see us strive and be the healthiest population on the planet. Since Jenny has stopped practicing as a doctor, she's been extremely busy breaking down the neuroscience and comprehending it in a way that we can understand. There is just not enough adjectives in the English language to describe how special the brain is. Jenny and I unpack the typical human behaviours and how our Western culture can sometimes blur the true definition of success. We also spoke about some practical tips on how you guys can cultivate a thriving mind. Funny enough, that's the title of one of Jenny's books. We speak about this in depth during today's episode. And I'll also have links in the show notes for where you can purchase the book yourselves. Friends, this one is a goodie. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Don't forget to let Jenny and myself know that you're listening by screenshotting the cover of the podcast and posting it on your social media. Let's spread the word about the amazing content discussed during today's episode. Enough chit-chat from me. Over to you, Dr. Jenny Brockes. Dr. Jenny Brockes, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm really excited to get into this conversation today. I know we are just chatting off air before about the part of Australia that you're in, beautiful Western Australia for the listeners at home and for our overseas listeners, what is happening down in the West of Australia? Uh, Not a lot, I should say, but in terms of uh, COVID-19, our Premier locked down the borders Oh, many months ago now, um, basically, we are not allowed to leave West Australia uh, and you have to apply a long time ahead if you want to come into West Australia, even if you are a West Australian. So there's very little movement uh, outside or into the state. And because of that, we've been relatively COVID-19 free, which means that the initial lockdown period Uh, was able to be relaxed fairly early on and we can now move freely around our our state 
And West Australia is basically the size of Europe. So we can't complain that we can't go places. It's just that there's quite often a lot of nothingness there. In that a lot of it internally is, is desert, but it's beautiful. It is exquisite. And anybody who hasn't visited Australia, uh, I would highly recommend when travel restrictions are lifted, please come and visit because it is just outstanding in natural beauty. Yeah, my time in Western Australia had an absolute blast. It's just beautiful connecting to the wildlife. I don't know about anyone else that has been or you personally, Jenny. My experience there was so grounding and liberating being so connected to nature and the beauty of Australia. And we often, I know as Australians, it's easy to bypass the beauty that we have here because we constantly are immersed with overseas and Europe and Asia and stuff like that. But we have so much beauty in Australia. It's um. It, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I guess this time's probably exciting for that, knowing that overseas travel is not looking likely for the next short while. So it gives us the opportunity to experience that beauty that we have in Australia. That's right. And, and you know, we, we can travel to beautiful forests in the southwest. Um, we've got magnificent um, gorges in the north and, of course, an amazing coastline, which varies from flat white sand to stark cliffs it's you know there's so much variety here we are very very fortunate indeed absolutely and i guess backtracking a little bit to how western australia has dealt with the global pandemic jenny we were chatting off air before that you guys haven't experienced a quote-unquote first wave yet so what do you think from a a health implication and a quote-unquote herd immunity point of view how does that impact when the borders open and and we start to experience COVID influx in Western Australia? I think um, we will be prepared in that we have witnessed what's been going on elsewhere in Australia and beyond. So I don't think anybody will be sort of surprised um, when hotspots start popping up from place to place and restrictions have to be sort of reintroduced again. Uh, I think that's inevitable, but I think hopefully we'll be better placed because we will have learned from other people's experiences and know what, what does work, um, you know, like the introduction of um, compulsory masks being worn in, in public places and things like that. Diving a little bit deeper into COVID-19, what we know that people with chronic disease and and the elderly are amongst the most vulnerable. And if we dive a little bit deeper into the root cause of of disease, a large percentage of the top 10 leading causes of death can potentially be preventable through lifestyle. And I know that's something that you're heavily immersed in lifestyle medicine and and me personally in, in the personal training and holistic nutrition space. That's something that I prioritize in in education of my clients and obviously my lifestyle i'd love to know how you got into this lifestyle medicine field and and what was life like for jenny brockers growing up (laughs) okay so um i had a very sort of normal upbringing and had no idea what i wanted to do when i grew up uh, and landed in nursing initially and then as i qualified as a nurse realized that i wanted more i wanted to be able to be in a position of uh, making sort of decisions to help people to get better. And I was fortunate enough to be able to transfer into medicine and started a a medical career and worked for many years as a general practitioner here in Perth, West Australia, which was fantastic. But over the course of time, I came to understand that in many instances, 
I really felt like I was just putting a Band-Aid onto people's ailments. I wasn't able to get down to the nitty gritty of why they had ended up in my consulting room with the health challenge they were facing. I also have always believed that prevention is better than cure. And yet the medical system or health system isn't really um, evolved to deal with the prevention side of things. It's all about reacting to when things have gone wrong um, and trying to, you know, put Humpty Dumpty together again, so to speak. And, and that frustration grew stronger and stronger. But I guess it wasn't until I experienced burnout um, when I, you know, in charge of a group medical practice, working too hard for too long, pushing myself beyond the limits of what humans can endure, I, I came to understand too that much of the way that, or many of the choices we have made in how we run our lives and our workplaces are actually very unhealthy and are making us sick. And I fell into lifestyle medicine not knowing that was what it was, because at the time I had just dived headfirst into all the new neuroscience that was coming out, all the positive psychology. And it just made perfect sense that we actually have so many solutions available to us already. I, I get that, you know, we've got this fantastic technology, we've got these new ways of doing and helping people to recover from illness. And I think that's fantastic, you know, as we sort of see um, robotics and the brain computer interface and all this sort of stuff, which is a bit like sort of sci-fi, but it's absolutely fantastic. But I think we've forgotten the fundamentals that, you know, we're human beings. And when we go back to addressing what keeps us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually and cognitively well, we've actually already got the answers. And I think it's that's so empowering because it means we don't have to rely on a pill or a potion to fix us. We can undertake those choices for ourselves to make sure that we stay as fit and healthy as possible which I see as essential and I think moving forward from the COVID time I think hopefully other people will also have tapped into understanding that we've had this period where things were a bit quieter for a time it was all certainly very different you know we, we were working from home um, we were doing things differently. We were going out for walks. We were reconnecting with local parks or uh, a beach or something like that, which we hadn't had the opportunity or the time for before because we were so busy doing other things. And I think the greater reflection for many people I've spoken with is that they've really enjoyed this time as a time to reconnect with what really is important to them, which is their health, their well-being, their relationships, and what they do beyond work, because that sort of adds to the sort of completeness of them as a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree more with everything that you've just said there, Jenny. And it's interesting. I, I've 
been going through this emotional roller coaster down here in Victoria. We've been locked down for a number of weeks now, even into months. And you, you go through these sort of different cycles of emotions. And it started for me as being angry at the whole situation and and all that sort of stuff. And then realized that, you know, you can't control this situation. Like no matter how angry that you get at it, it's not going to change a situation. So let's look internally and try and maximize this time and start focusing on the things that matter most to us, like you said, like that human connection, it really enables us to connect with the people around us deeply instead of just that surface conversation that we tend to have when we're really, really busy. So for me now understanding that there's a a deeper meaning and, and this is happening for a reason, it's just changed my whole outlook on the global pandemic. And it's really fueled this sort of inner passion for, for me. Right. And yeah, I, I think it's it's true for many people that um, I've spoken to a lot of sort of business leaders, um, business owners, and they've all said the same thing. They've realized that basically they were on this treadmill before that really wasn't serving them. And moving forward, they're hopeful that they can hold on to the good that has come out of this and be able to lead slightly different lives that feel more relaxed or relaxed is that the right word maybe not but but to feel more in control of our lives I think and and feel that sense of calm contentment and feel happier I think there are so many unhappy people out there who are just driving themselves into the ground through overwork and feel overwhelmed and dealing with high levels of stress on a daily basis and that that's not a life that is not living Um, and yet it's so easy to get caught up in that sometimes because of our own expectation of, well, this is what I have to do, or from external pressures where we feel that we have to conform to other people's notions of what is the correct way to live and operate in this world today. Absolutely love that, Jenny, and quality of life triumphs all, I believe. Heading back a little bit into your time as a general practitioner and being, you know, immersed in the, the consultation realms, what sort of things were you seeing on a day-to-day basis as a practitioner? Were, was there a sense of reliability from the consumer that you were going to be the sort of answer to, to their problems? <laughs> I know everything. Um, I wish. <laughs> no, um, I think that time hopefully has now come to an end where, People used to sort of see the doctor as the all-knowing solution to their problems. And I think now it's much more of a conversation where people are, they're they're better educated, they've got greater understanding of their own bodies. And and I think there's a a better amount of openness between um, the person coming to see the doctor and the doctor's interaction with them. Because I know from myself, the way I practice medicine was always coming from this place of curiosity. I wanted to find out more about why is this person here today? What has led them to need to come and see me? And what else do I need to know that's going to enable me to make some suggestions as to what I think is going on and what will probably help them to recover more quickly. But I think it's it's moved from, oh, sit down, take a seat. Oh, you've got this, this and this. Oh, well, obviously your diagnosis is X, Y or Z. Here's your prescription. See you. Bye bye. Uh, I think now it's much more of empowering people to take responsibility for themselves so that if you do have a chronic 
medical condition, and let's face it, a lot of people do have chronic medical conditions, whether it's high blood pressure or heart problems or type 2 diabetes or struggling to manage their weight, all these things. Um, it's about working with the person to support them the best way you can to enable them to lead a healthier life. And I think what's really exciting that's come out of all the lifestyle medicine, where we, because we now understand that, and I'm sure you know this statistic yourself, Matt, that 80% of all chronic medical disease is essentially preventable. Um, we also have this capacity now in some instances to reverse the disease process. Um, for instance, in type 2 diabetes, if you can catch it early enough, you can actually reverse that process so that the person is no longer considered to have type 2 diabetes. Whereas, you know, when I went through medical school, it was like, well, once you've got that diagnosis, it's with you for life. It's progressive and all these other things will be likely to occur as a consequence. So how radical a change in our thinking is that? And it's not just in diabetes either. As we start to get even greater understanding of how the human body and brain works, I think the next few years are going to be extraordinary because we will be able to see so much more clearly what we can be doing differently. And, I, and the other thing about lifestyle is that, yes, we know that genes play a significant role in determining our health outcomes and we can't change our deck of cards there but what we can influence is our environment and the understanding that the way the environmental factors influence our genes is so significant that, for example, if you're talking about a condition like Alzheimer's, which many people are very fearful about because they often have family members who may have experienced it or know other people whose family members have experienced it, we now know that lifestyle um, choices make a huge difference to influencing when certain genes will switch on or how much they will be expressed. So that, um, you know, the World Health Organization has been talking about this now as well, saying that it's really important to look after your weight, um, you know, not smoke, do some exercise, uh, eat more healthily, because these are the sort of things which make a difference to how well we age and particularly in terms of our brain health as we age as well. Yeah, I could not agree more there, Jenny, as well. It's, it's incredible. And going back to the topic of genes and, and stuff like that before, I can't remember who said this quote, whether it was Dr. Greger or Dr. Esselstein saying that genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger in relation to your genetic makeup and how you're susceptible to disease. Do you remember which doctor said that? I can't remember off the top of my head. I wish I could because that is such a great quote. <laughs> it is. And, and the other thing I would suggest, if anybody's interested, uh, is to read Dr. Greger's book, how not to die um, when because a friend of mine uh, showed this book to me and she said oh have you have you read this book Jenny and I said well no but Dr Gregor was one of my tutors and she said oh it's it's amazing and I said oh okay so I bought it and read it and it is amazing um, and it's and it's really great because it challenges so much of our existing belief because we we, we create our own stories don't we we 
we we choose to believe certain things and we hold on to those beliefs for for forever normally um and it's it's important sometimes to challenge those beliefs because our understanding changes if we still thought that the world was flat <laughs> we wouldn't move very far from, from Position, we still be worried about falling off the edge. So I think it's it's very helpful to have people who are at the forefront of the understanding to to write or speak about their their knowledge and their research. Because I found from reading that book, for example, that was challenging some of my ingrained beliefs. And I thought, oh, really? Oh gosh. <laughs> and I think keeping that open mind to understanding that you know our, our learning shifts and and one great example of this too is from the time I was in medical school and I'm not going to tell you when that was but it was a little while ago um I was taught that um as you aged senility was inevitable because you had a finite number of blood, uh, brain cells which started dying off as soon as you were born and so you know if you lived long enough you wouldn't have any left <laughs> was the essential message <laughs> um, and how wrong was that and yet you know it wasn't until you know a decade or two later that you know our understanding about neuroplasticity and how the brain actually can repair itself um, even after fairly significant trauma is, is, is remarkable. So thank goodness we do get a few things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree with you there, Jenny. And it's incredible. These people like Dr. Gregor that you were saying before, influencing the population and challenging the status quo, it has a massive ripple effect because I've noticed in the shift in, you know, from a community point of view, the consumer has changed their perspective on way on the way they approach medicine. And they're starting to look at their lifestyle and preventative medicine a, a lot more. It's really, really exciting and not taking away from Western medicine because Western medicine is amazing. It's got all these amazing resources. Obviously, the ability to look at things on a cellular and intracellular level is incredible, but when we were missing, and this is nobody's fault, we were missing a big part of the, the picture for such a long period of time, and that's lifestyle, and it's incredible to see that the research and, and the practicality of that is starting to surface in our day. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I know you are extremely passionate about neuroscience and you've highlighted that a few times in, in the podcast. When did this passion begin for you, Jenny? I think it was when I was on holiday and I took a little book away to read called um, Sharp Brains. Well, it was written by Sharp Brains, A Guide to Brain Fitness. I think that was the, the title. And it was a little tiny book and I thought, okay, this looks quite interesting. And it was one of those books that, that did change my life using that sort of cliche because it was written in conjunction with the neuroscientist and they were explaining about the neuroplasticity and how we can actually channel that to our own advantage to improve the way we function, improve the way we think. And I thought, oh my goodness me. <laughs> Uh, and so from there, I just leapt into all the other research that I could find on the same subject. And the more I read, the more I realized that um, we do have that capacity to change our minds. We can literally rewire our brain through our conscious choice of focus. And we can install new habits 
that will serve us better if we if we've recognized that we've developed certain habits or maladaptive behaviors as some people call them um, which aren't so helpful to us and I think that's also very empowering because you know we all know you know it's difficult to give up smoking or lose weight or to start exercise if exercise really isn't your thing but by knowing that you can it, by you know putting in place um, a framework of what you can do for yourself to change that and create a new habit is life-changing for many people and to know that you can go from being a complete couch potato to somebody who actually enjoys getting out and going for a run uh, is 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 wonderful I think. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. I'm loving this conversation so far. It's highlighting so many light bulbs in my mind. And and the the brain is such an amazing, amazingly, incredibly complex, if that's even a word, topic. And it's it's so captivating to try and comprehend everything that's going on in the brain. My mum was a nurse and she used to work at a neurosurgery ward and I used to love listening to stories from from her experiences as well. And it's sort of like given me this passion to find out more about the brain as well. And highlighting a bit what you said before as well, how we have the ability to sort of change our circumstances. It's evident through people that undergo traumatic events in their lifestyle and, and knowing that they've really tapped into the power of their brain. And one that person that really sticks out for me is, I'm not sure if you've heard of him before, Jenny, David Goggins before, have you heard of him? No, I haven't. No, yeah. tell, me, tell me about David. He is an absolute nutcase for lack of a better word he's had such a traumatic childhood he was abused by his father he was growing up in um, a very racist environment um, in America and his mum was quite poor and they were going from house to house anyway he went through this whole journey I'm just trying to relay his his life for you in a, in a nutshell he went through this journey through high school and he ended up falling down um, a little spiral that got him to being heavily overweight um, and quite ill. He saw this ad on TV one day that he wanted to go be a Navy SEAL. So automatically he went and started doing the Navy SEAL training, completely turned his life around and went through the Navy SEAL training, which is vigorous and it takes a special person to go through that sort of experience. And he talks a lot about callousing his mind and how he faced so many traumatic events through that period, through his whole childhood and like in the midst of pain at Navy SEAL training, like I'm not sure if you've heard of Hell Week before where they have to go through this series of vigorous tests and fitness elements and sort of equations and things like that with little to no sleep and it's trying to callous your brain and trying to give you the ability to push past anything. And he talks about it in his book and in his interviews that he's trying to callous his brain and, and really tap into his true potential. It's incredible. I highly recommend his stuff. And it's back to the point, I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but it's just incredible to know that you have potentially control over how you confront a situation and how you can obviously treat, prevent disease from occurring. Absolutely. Because um, if, we, if we talk about stress, for example, I think everybody would agree that what we are experiencing now is a time of heightened stress. Everybody I speak to is telling me how, how worried they are, how concerned they are for their future, and they're feeling quite anxious about it. So we are all experiencing this increase in the level of stress, but we're all different. And what we experience on an individual level will, will vary enormously. So we need to be mindful that 
some people will be able to carry that certain level of stress relatively easily. Other people will struggle. But the other thing to remember is struggle is not necessarily bad either. Because if you see stress as being a, a, just a negative, which it isn't, by the way, <laughs> uh, you and I know that stress can be actually really useful to us in small doses to help us to step up to that challenge. I mean, I, I don't know if I could get through a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> um, I think sometimes you have to lim- realise your limitations. Um, but, you know, a little bit of stress does help you to step up to that challenge to to give your very best. And we know that's true, certainly in the education field as well. You know, the teacher who says, hey, guys, you've got a test next week. Everybody goes, <gasps> but then hopefully they will go home and put in the extra effort to make sure that they do pass the test and do so reasonably well. So we can use stress to our advantage and we can also use struggle to our advantage if we frame it up correctly. Because if we see struggle as being something that's hard, it's it's wearing, it's not good for us, then we're not likely to want to go that way. We want to avoid that struggle because we it's hurtful. But if we see struggle as something that's just part and parcel of life, along with dealing with the ups and downs of everyday stress, then we have a different approach to it. So it's about helping people, especially if they do find things really challenging at the moment, is to be reassured that there's nothing wrong with you, you are not broken. However, your body is reacting in a certain way. And if that's causing you difficulty in that you can't sleep, you're finding you're really unfocused and distracted uh, and you're a bit snappy, not not terribly happy with other people or yourself, uh, feeling anxious or even feeling a bit depressed, there are ways that you can get around that. And obviously, if it's got to that point where you're not managing very well, it's about reaching out, putting the hand up to ask for help. And that that is never, ever a sign of weakness. I see it as a sign of courage because it takes quite a lot to step up and say, you know what, I'm not traveling so well at the moment and I just need a bit of help. Can you help? And because most people want to help. And and that's that's one of the beautiful things about being human. When we see somebody, you know, who's who's not doing so well, we want to be able to support them in some way. So despite the fact that if we ourselves are not traveling so well, it's it's overcoming that reticence to speak up and speak out, because otherwise, if we're hiding it too well, we're actually just delaying the process of, of healing. Yeah, totally, Jenny. And following on from that as well, we often experience these struggle, struggling times, stressful situations, difficult situations. But in those situations, and once we come out the other side, that's when we experience the most growth. Your mind is wanting to keep you in a, in a comfortable situation. That's the beautiful power of the brain. It's always trying to keep you comfortable. So it's looking for the way that it can protect you in the best way. Right. So pushing past those situations and sometimes it's not easy as that that's when we need to outsource and like you said before ask for help there's nothing you know weak about that it's courageous like you said but that's how we enable ourselves to grow and and evolve as humans Mm, absolutely so I think sort of moving forward it's about sort of looking at what we need to be doing for ourselves in order to be as fit and healthy as possible Um, and we can use everything that's 
that's coming out of the science to support us in that because we know now how important exercise is in particular and it doesn't have to be exercise with the capital E uh, it's it's really about increasing our level of physical activity across our day that makes such a difference, not just to how we feel generally, but it's it's been shown to enhance our, our health overall. It improves or strengthens our immune system, so we're not likely to get as sick as easily. We're, we're able to fend off infection. Uh, we're more creative. We're more imaginative. We're able to think more clearly and we're releasing more of those feel-good hormones like dopamine, which is our chief reward hormone. Um, and as soon as the brain experiences a, a dopamine hit, it's saying, oh, can you, can you do that again, please? Because that was so nice. <laughs> and then um, if, if, we're, if we're getting active and we're doing stuff outside, um, and obviously, depending on where you are in the world and depending on your restriction level, Getting outside into the fresh air and hopefully a bit of sunshine is critical to our mental well-being in that just being in a green space makes us feel better. And uh, so if you're in a green space or blue space or you're near water, it doesn't matter. But we now know you need 120 minutes, that's two hours a week as the very minimum in order to stay mentally well. So if you combine being outside with just being active, whether it's going for a walk, a cycle ride, anything like that, you're getting the best of both worlds because you're getting that, that influence of the nature side of things along with the increase of physical activity, which is so good for body and brain. So you get the, the it's, a, it's a win-win for us doing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely love it. Following on from that, you are the author of an incredible book called Thriving Minds. And I personally haven't finished the book, but you sent me a copy about two or three weeks ago. And I can't wait to dive into that. And it's, it's, I love the word thriving. And I know I want to dive into that a little bit further later on in the podcast. But for the listeners at home, talk to us a little bit about what Thriving Minds is. I, I wrote this book because I was really concerned about the people I was seeing on a daily basis who were overwhelmed, overworked, stressed out of their brains, and in some instances, quite lonely. And so I wanted to address some of these, what I call modern maladies, uh, by just re reminding people that it doesn't have to be this way and there are alternatives. And it's not meant to be uh, follow this framework and you will be fixed and fine forever. It's really, as I said, it's a reminder piece of what many of us would find helpful. And then people can just pick and choose what's most relevant to them. So for example, um, it's I talk in the first section about how to create more happiness in our lives. And it's not the happy clappy sort of happiness. It's that deeper, calm, contented, happier state that when we're in that position, we feel more capable, we're more confident, we're more courageous, and everything just feels better. So it's a really important um, part of our mental well-being. And then I talk more about the thrival piece, which is about addressing all those things that enable you to get out of bed, bouncing on all eight cylinders every morning. Um, and it's 
these are things that we all know because we've been told the public health messages for the last 40 years, but we're not always so good at doing because we prioritise other things first. So it's it's about you know, the quality of and duration of sleep we get. It's the, the choice of foods that we make to have on a daily basis. And I know at the moment, a lot of people are snacking a bit more and um, eating sort of more comfort foods because it's a way of dealing with, with stress. And certainly our wine consumption as a nation has gone up significantly. And I'm sorry to say, it's particularly the women that are doing this. <laughs> what that says. <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, the, the things that we normally do to sort of sustain us have often flown out of the window because we're in this sort of state of stress. So it's it's just the reminder piece. You know, if you find um, music really helpful to put you in a better state of mind or just makes you feel good, you know, how can you sort of reconnect with music, whether you're listening to it or playing it? How can you, um, you know, dance if you like dancing? Um I've, I've recently taken up swing dancing with my husband and it is so much fun. And I think we forget, you know, as grown-ups, it's so important to have fun in our lives. You know, we get so caught up in the busyness of going to work, doing all that stuff. Um, and then if you've got family, looking after your family and everybody else, and we forget, you know, we need to have downtime to just relax and chill or go out and dance. You know, it's, it's so it's, doing those things which give you pleasure and joy. So I don't know what you do for fun, Matt. What, what, what do you do? I'm um, very big on exercise and moving my body for fun. I absolutely love that. Um, so whether that's, you know, putting myself through torture, for lack of a better time, with, with some kettlebells or going for a run or just, you know, sipping on a coffee, going for a walk in nature, those are the things that I, um, I look for and, and do for fun. Yes. Yes, um, and yeah. I think it's sort of changed. This situation has has made me look like reflect my habits and how I was previously maybe resorting to fun, and that might have been you know going to watch Netflix or something, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think that that serves a purpose for whatever period in your life that you are, or whatever situation in your in your week that you're in. But um, yeah, this time has just made me really reflect, and I love that word that you said, fun, Jenny. It's it's funny. Dale talks about this a lot. A mutual friend of ours, he talks about as adults, we often lose the ability to have fun. We get caught up in the stresses of everyday life, and and he uses the reflection on children and how they don't have a care in the world. And when they're out, you know, playing basketball, they're not thinking about anything else. They're just having fun. And he has taught me to adapt that to my personal training and coaching philosophy that by incorporating healthy competition and getting people to have fun, you sort of forget the tough times and the thing that you're having to do in the first place. So it makes it worth it. It absolutely it does. And it also helps to build our resilience to, to when it, it is more difficult. So, uh, you know, there's a great deal to be said about having more fun. And along with that, um, giving ourselves permission to smile more and to, and to have a good laugh, because I, I think we take ourselves far too seriously a lot of the time. And, and to go back to the kids, you know, when if you look at children, especially if they're playing together, hopefully they're smiling and laughing together, not, not beating each other up and crying. But... <laughs> Um, as kids, you know, it's it's such a natural thing to to laugh and play. And yet as grown-ups, it's, uh, you know, if you're, you know, we don't laugh nearly as often as we did when we were children. And that's, that's a bit sad because 
laughter, especially if it's a really good belly laugh, is a fantastic workout for your body. Isn't that right? Definitely. Absolutely. And you, you all know that feeling that you get after you've been in stitches for laughing for five minutes straight. Like you, you can't, your jaw hurts from smiling so much. Your stomach hurts from laughing so hard, but it's a, it's an amazing feeling. And I, I can't tell you the last time that happened to me personally, but you know, that's just a reflection on, on how we sort of live our lifestyle, I guess. Mm, it is. So I think it's, it's giving ourselves permission to um, chill out a bit more and to play a bit more and to laugh a bit more because that is what I believe contributes to cultivating a, 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 a more fulfilling and a happier life overall. Love that, Jenny. And I want to unpack that a little bit more later in the show. But before we go any further, I, I love the word thrive and, and thriving. And it has a special place in my heart through the journey that I've been on. What does thriving mean to you? And why did you choose to use that as the title of the book? I guess it was because well-being didn't quite fit the bill. Um, what I'm talking about is essentially well-being but I wanted it to feel more than that. And to me, the next step up was thrive, where it's not about having everything perfect. It's about just feeling that it's as good as it can be and you're, you're feeling great as a consequence and capable of doing what you want to do. So thriving is holistic. It's, it's looking after your body and your mind and your brain to um, be the, the best version of yourself and to be what I call a happy, thriving human. Love it. I totally agree. And, and the word thriving has so many different meanings. It's highly personalised. Someone can be thriving in different elements of their life in whatever field they're in. So I really love that choice of words. And I think that's what drew me, drew me to the book in the first place, Jenny, to be honest. <laughs> We spoke about it before, how we improve our cognition, how we cultivate an environment that enables us to thrive, that word again, and that's developing a lifestyle and, and habitual behaviour that enables us to thrive in whatever our values and our passions are. I'd love to give the listeners at home some practical tips on where to start, on how they can start cultivating an environment that they can thrive in. I think the first thing to do is to address who is in your environment? Because uh, I think we underestimate the impact our relationships have on our well-being. And so I'm talking about your significant other, if you have one, or your other family members, or your close, your closest family, uh, closest friends. There was a great study done well it's still ongoing it began back in 1938 in Harvard where they were examining what makes for a good life what what enables people to become successful and they took two groups of boys because in those days they only researched boys they didn't include the girls but they do now um, and one group was a group from Harvard who were sophomores in a particular year and the other group were from the poorest um, parts of Boston, the, the disadvantaged youth. And they basically followed these boys for forever. Every two years, they would physically go and interview them 
at length, asking them all sorts of questions about their lives, what they were doing, what they'd achieved. Um, and they're still interviewing some of the original cohort who are now in their 90s, which is amazing. But they've also now included their spouses and their family members. And what they discovered was to be happy and healthy, it really doesn't matter where you come from, your, your upbringing, whether you've been born with a silver spoon in your mouth or whether you've come from a, a low socioeconomic background really isn't what makes the difference. And it doesn't matter what university you went to or didn't go to, it boils down to the quality of your closest relationships. Isn't that amazing? That's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. So I think if you're, if you're going to thrive, <laughs> look after those closest people to you. And, and there's a guy called Robin Dunbar, who you may have come across, um, who talks about the fact that we have uh, certain groups of, of people that are in our social circles. And we've got a sort of outer circle of about 150 people who we know by sight, but we don't sort of interact with. And then the circles get smaller and more intimate until you get down to your inner circle, which is usually your, your life partner and probably a couple of really close friends. And that's the inner circle that you want to nurture because when push comes to shove, if you ever end up in a bit of a hole and you need some assistance, when you've established that supporting network around you, they will always be there for you and will help you to dust off your knees and get back on your feet. And, and I think that is critical to absolutely everything. Once you've got your relationships sorted, and I know not everybody has happy relationships, I do get that, um, but if you've got a strong social network, then you can put in place those habits which support you. And I think here it's about just recognising what brings out the best in ourselves. And I know for me, it's sleep. If I don't get enough sleep, I'm like a bear with a sore head the next day. I'm not particularly <laughs> nice to be around. <laughs> I'm not thinking properly. I make silly mistakes. And... Um, my, my husband's saying, I think you need to go to bed earlier. <laughs> You're not watching that last episode of Netflix tonight. Um, it's about understanding ourselves and then making these a priority. So if it's sleep, you prioritise sleep. If it's, if it's your diet, your priority is your diet. If it's your exercise routine, then you prioritise that and make it a, what I call a non-negotiable. Because when it's non-negotiable, it has to be done no matter what, because you know that even though you're tired and it's a bit grey and misly outside and you're not really feeling like it, but you know you feel so much better when you go out for that jog around the block, just do it. And, you know, as, as the Nike advert said, just do it. Because the benefit uh, is that it reinforces that habit. So it becomes something you do automatically. You don't have to think about it. Because often when I'm talking with people, they say, Jenny, you know, I get all this stuff about lifestyle and yeah, I know it would be so much better for me if I did this, this and this. And I said, no, no, no. It's about what you truly value. And when you really want to do something because you really want to experience the benefit of that, it becomes that automatic priority that you do no matter what and do it for that reason, for no other reason. And uh, that's what helps us 
to start to create that ripple effect where you make one small change to then reap the benefits quite quickly and easily and think, oh, didn't I do well? Oh, I, I walked sort of 200 meters around the block. Hey, and now I'm going to do it a bit faster. Now I'm going to add on a little bit extra distance. And we build slowly and gradually so we don't injure ourselves. And all of a sudden you find that not only are you, for example, exercising or being a bit more physically active, you're now more motivated to look into what you're putting in your shopping trolley. Maybe the corn chips can come out this week and you're going to put something else that's a bit healthier in instead. So it's it's that sort of positive feedback look, which is what changes our behaviors, but we have to do it for ourselves, and we have to know why we're wanting to do it. Knowing that it's good for us is not going to change anything. I totally agree with you there, Jenny. And we see that when we relate it back to plants if we're giving them the environment that they can thrive like nourishing them with water correct sunlight and we're not putting them in a an environment that is dry um not getting any sun we can see that the plant clearly thrives in that environment because we're nurturing it and we're enabling it to grow to grow in that situation that relates directly back to humans if we're surrounding ourselves in an environment that's enabling us to grow i feel like that sets us up for success so that's a fantastic point of view and then you mentioned the ripple effect before the ripple effect is it's amazing and it's something that is so so hard to put into words you almost have to feel it to experience it but when you're elevating yourself and you're working at a higher vibration then it's natural that these other things are going to come towards you in your life as well and yeah I totally agree with you there Jenny. Yeah I think we just become more open to the idea that we can take on more rather than it feeling a chore and a burden and one more thing to do so it's like when I talk to people who are just overwhelmed by sort of how much work they've got to do on a daily basis. And I say, well, have you ever considered mindfulness meditation? And some of them sort of look at me as if I've said sort of a rude word or something. It's like, (laughs) meditate as well? You know, how am I meant to have time for that? And I say, well, you know what? Less can be so much more. But um, unless you give yourself permission to actually slow down and it doesn't have to be mindfulness meditation, it could be something else, but by just tapping into allowing yourself to rest and recuperate and restore, you're actually going to be feeling a lot better. You're going to be functioning at a higher level. And they often look at me and I can see they don't believe me. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it goes back to, well, if they're willing to explore and try it out, just to feel what it feels like to stop being so busy and to stop doing just for a few minutes to regain that sense of calm and automatically you're back in control of things and you feel oh this is this is good (laughs) I feel so much better now Um, so I think it's just about the self-awareness piece that we need to come back to time after time and to understand too that you know the habits that we establish in one phase of our life won't necessarily be the same habits that serve us as well at different times of our life. So I think it's it's always a work in progress. If, for example, in your 20s and 30s, running is your thing and you just love running and you run and you run on a regular basis and it's just part of your life, it gives you joy and it makes you feel so great, awesome. But maybe by the time you're in your 40s and your 50s and a little bit of arthritis has crept into your knees, um, you might find that's 
not as helpful to you anymore. So, or, you know, if you have an accident or something like that. So maybe you then need to switch up what your routine around physical activity might be and just be willing to sort of learn new new skills, new activities that will help you to, to regain that sense of physical strength and well-being, but just achieving it in a different way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I totally, totally agree with that there. At this point in time, we're very connected through social media and through our devices. And I guess when we're trying to reconsider our environment and our social circle that we touched on before, social media has influenced our perception on who our support network is because it's so easy to have conversations with people that are on the other side of the globe, but they're not necessarily, or they may not necessarily be in our support network. I'd love to know some tips on how we can reconnect and really dive deeper and find out who is actually in our support network and, and look past the screen. Oh, that's a great question. I think what we can do is to seek first to offer help to the other person um, and to show appreciation for what we have from that other person. If they've done something nice for us, we, we, we extend gratitude, um, say thank you, and just sort of keep the conversation flowing. But I think the more we reach out to help other people, the more ready they will be to reach back in when it's our turn to need help, if that makes sense. So I think the way we discover who our true inner circle are is, is to establish that strong relationship first, or what you think is a strong relationship, and almost like test the waters. Um, I mean, obviously you don't want to deep, fall into a deep black hole um, before you find out who your true friends are. Yeah. I, I think you can you can sort of ask for support in different ways that will immediately give you a sense of who responds. And it's not necessarily going to be the people that you expect to respond. And I know this through personal experience. Um, I have had bouts of depression in the past and I found it difficult to tell people because, you know, it's, it's one of those things it's difficult to tell people when you're, when you're feeling really low. Then, and, but the people I did share it with, it, which included some of my closest friends, they weren't actually the ones that stepped up to help me during that time. It was actually uh, a couple of people who were in a slightly uh, outer circle of friends, people that I knew quite well and would socialize with occasionally, but they were the ones who immediately came forward and offered help in various ways to get me through that, that particular time. And, it, and I remember being a bit gobsmacked and, and I thought, well, maybe yeah, I didn't quite understand why that should be. But and I think it's going to be different. I mean, not you don't expect that your best friends aren't going to help you either. But I think sometimes we, we, we place assumptions on, on aspects of people we have in our friendship groups and they are not always correct. And it doesn't mean that I am any less friendly with my best friends. It just means that for whatever reason, they found it really difficult to reach out and help me. And whether it's because we were so close, they felt awkward about it, I don't know. Um, but I think it's just, just letting go of all that stuff and just being enormously grateful for having other relationships who 
you know, were the people who got on the phone and said, Jenny, you know, what's going on? You don't seem yourself. And, and it was just that sort of, oh, thank you for calling. Uh, and that sort of unexpected um, reconnection, if you like, that can be very helpful to us as well. So that it's just, I think that's what I would suggest that we all do. Nurture our really strong, close relationships, but also, of course, have other people around us and then by testing the waters, see who see who comes in. You don't have to have a depressive illness to, to test that either. It could be asking for help, you know, if, you, if you're doing some research or something or you can't find something and you want to buy a particular item, you can just put it out there and just see who's who are the people that always come forward and, and offer a solution. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's very personalised based on your, you know, situation in, in your life and, it doesn't necessarily resonate with people that you see the most. Like you could have very, very distant friends that are not necessarily in your close circle that you see every day of the week, but they're the people that, you know, you will always reach out to you and always will help you through those testing times. So I think that's a really, really great thing to highlight in the conversation, Jenny, because we are so connected to our devices and we potentially have lost our sense of connection with one another because we think that this is, you know, it's an ability, it's a great ability to connect with people through the devices, but it's steering away from that human connection that I think we all thrive and all need to, to grow. Yes, I think that's very true. And while it's been fantastic having the technology to be able to actually eyeball somebody on a screen. There's nothing that beats a face-to-face conversation with somebody. And I think what we need to be mindful of during this time is to not rely essentially on technology solely to, to maintain our social connections and to make sure that we're looking beyond the screen because I think sometimes it's very easy to portray uh, an everything's fine attitude online, um, whereas really you may be feeling quite quite lonely uh, and quite sort of isolated. And I think it's it's about being intuitive enough to sense when somebody isn't contributing as much. Maybe they're turning their screen off so you can't see their face. Or maybe they're just going very, very quiet and you think, well, what's going on there? Because I think sometimes we forget that when we feel low or sad or lonely like that, we tend to withdraw. And that, of course, makes it feel worse. Um, So we withdraw even more. So I think this is the time to really get good at reaching out and just checking in with each other. How are you going? How are you going really um, and then sort of moving on from there. Yeah, I, I could not agree more there, Jenny. You've given me so many aha moments in this chat today. And and following on from that as well, that this point in time is really enabling us to miss that human connection. And yes, we sort of revolve our lives around technology, which is fantastic. It's given us some amazing opportunities. But I think I start to see in my community the shift in people and how, you know, I'm seeing people stop in the street and talk to each other, even though they're maintaining social distancing, still wearing a mask, they're still clearly craving that human connection. Maybe looking at someone through a computer screen isn't enough. I know for me personally, recording podcasts over Zoom has its challenges and I really am a big fan of authentic conversation and sitting across from someone and creating an environment to have a conversation that is thought provoking and whatnot. But 
yeah, I find it, I found it really challenging over Zoom for a number of different things. I personally cannot wait till restrictions are lifted. And I think we're all going to really appreciate that, that connection a whole lot more once, once they are. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Jenny, taking a little bit of a 180, we spoke about thriving before, and I think contrary to thriving is is stress. And we touched on it earlier in the podcast as well. And stress impairs our ability to, you know, think clearly and ultimately affect our ability to make decisions and, and thrive really, I guess. So I'd love to know on a deeper level what part stress plays in terms of impairing our our ability to thrive and why does it impair our ability to think clearly in that situation? It's because as stress levels rise and and remain chronically elevated, we are producing um, copious quantities of the stress hormones, namely adrenaline and cortisol. And it's the cortisol which um, can become actually toxic to our brains so that uh, it starts to affect how our neurons, our brain cells are connected to each other. Um, We start to lose more connections. We lose the ability to create new connections, which is how we effectively learn. So as we stay in a highly stressed state, we're no longer able to take in new information and retain it as a new memory. So that is one implication. The other implication is that high levels of stress also trigger this emotional response, which tends to be very negative and can be quite intense. And as the intensity rises, the the part of the brain associated with this, the amygdala, starts to actually reduce access to our thinking brain. Uh, we, we use our prefrontal cortex for all our planning and organizing and decision making and for applying the brain's brakes for when we know it's not appropriate to say or do certain things. So as access to that part of our brain is reduced, our emotions start to take over. And this is a bit like witnessing the two-year-old having a tantrum in the supermarket where they just absolutely lose it. <laughs> <laughs> where you know, they're inconsolable and they're springing their lungs out and you think, oh, my goodness me. Um, and this can happen to us too uh, if we don't address in some way to uh, find a solution to lower those stress levels so that we're not at risk of what Dan Siegel would say, flipping our lid, because that it can be extremely damaging for relationships <laughs> um, and our reputation. Uh, and sometimes we can make some really lousy decisions, which are you know, not just questionable, but leave people shaking their heads. Thing, you know, They're wondering, what were you thinking when you made that decision? And of course, the problem was you weren't thinking because your stress was making it impossible for you to see clearly what the best solution would be. So we need to be very mindful that people who are in a very chronic stress state aren't going to be thinking clearly. They're not going to be performing to their normal level. Their productivity will drop. They're not able to retain information. So they're going to forget about appointments. They're going to make more silly mistakes. There are so, and and feel much more distracted. And they, they reckon that, I was reading just this week that on average, Um, The person who is highly stressed on an ongoing basis wastes about an hour and a half of work time 
procrastinating and not doing anything useful because they're trying to get their mind together to enable them to think. I mean, that's that's shocking, isn't it? An hour and a half. I mean, what could you do in an hour and a half? You could do all sorts of lovely things instead, rather than tormenting ourselves with with our well, our thoughts, um, which are quite often quite irrational and illogical. Yeah, definitely. And we relate that back to the like the ripple effect that you know stress and chronic stress has on our lifestyle. Like if we're in a, a stressful state and we try and live our lifestyle in a in a correct manner, like I relate it back to nutrition and exercise because that's you know what I've immersed myself in. We often make not the best food choices when we're stressed. And obviously you break it down further, it's impairing our digestion. So we're not extracting the nutrients from the food from whatever we're eating. So then it has a whole, you know, cascade of different health implications in terms of weight gain and obviously other chronic disease presence and things like that. But stress is inevitable in our life. And obviously we develop toolkits to be able to face those challenges and get through the stressful periods. And I think personally, breath has been the fastest way to alleviate stress and and connect back with the present moment. But then once we've alleviated that present stress, we need to dig deeper and start to find out what is causing the stress and where is the root cause coming from. And I think, you know, this is, this conversation has, and this period in time has given people that, that element of practicality where they can actually have time and to think about what's serving them or what's, you know, not serving them in, the, in their current lifestyle. And it's a great point in time to start making changes. Yes, particularly if, if you're somebody who lives with a degree of chronic anxiety. And I think there are many people around who do live with that uh, on a daily basis, and they they recognise in themselves that they they tend to have a sort of anxious outlook on everything, and this is a perfect time to sort of challenge what are the causes of this? What is it within ourselves that le- has led us to develop this state? And if it's not helpful, uh, what can we be doing differently? And I think this is where challenging our uh, self-limiting beliefs is the critical piece and that's not easy and it takes time and of course because we are creatures of habit we've evolved ways of thinking those neural pathways have been set down and because every time we rethink them we're strengthening that that pathways it's really hard to change the way we think but it's not impossible because we know the brain is plastic and but it's not until we understand where some of those self-limiting beliefs may have come from in the first place and to really sort of and I find you have to write this sort of stuff down on pen and paper with pen and paper to say okay I'm feeling anxious in what sort of situation and if you can identify the triggers to that anxiety or the stress then you can say okay in this particular situation, what is it that makes me feel more anxious? And then write down what that might be and how it manifests itself. And then to ask your question, yourself the question, well, how could I reframe that or look at that differently um, to, in order to get a different outcome? And by doing that process slowly, bit by bit, piece by piece, it's, it's possible to then shift that that way of thinking into 
a more useful way of thought that's actually going to alleviate a lot of that anxiety so that when next time that triggering event occurs, you've got, as you, as you in, in suggested, something in your toolbox which reminds you, aha, this is something that I've worked through before, so I'm just going to mentally just work through that activity to remember what was the process of going from I can't possibly do this to reframing it to, well, it's going to be a challenge, but maybe I can give it a go sort of thought. That sort of thing can make a huge, huge difference. And sometimes we can't always do it on our own. And this is, again, where reaching out to somebody who's qualified and trained in this arena, such as a psychologist or a counsellor, can be really beneficial. So by giving ourselves permission to say, you know what? I'm sick of living with this chronic stress and chronic anxiety. I really want to get on top of it, to learn the skill sets so that I'm not just managing it in the times when it really gets bad, but I want to look at ways to um, reduce it to such an extent that it's not there all the time. Yeah, in terms of reaching out for support through this period of time, there was some statistics that surfaced the other day in Victoria showing the increase in levels of people reaching out for support. And for me, I think that's incredible. I think that these systems and these support networks are being put in place for this exact reason when people are dealing with with difficult situations and not taking away from the situation. It's extremely difficult and it possesses challenges for everybody differently. But for me, I think that it's incredibly amazing to see people come together and utilize these support networks and and change the stigma around reaching out for support because you know it it, it does work. Absolutely, it does. And I think this is all about, as you suggest, it's making mental well-being the norm so that just in the same way, if you get a bad flu or you stub your toe and you might need medical attention, if you're if you're struggling with um, some difficulty in managing your emotional state or you're feeling really low, that it's just normal to go and do something about it rather than going through all that torment of, what will they think of me? How will I be judged? And, and all that sort of stuff. So I think knowing that in the last six months, we have seen a doubling of people experiencing psychological distress or mood disorders such as anxiety and depression just gives you a sense of how pervasive it is and how many people it's affecting. And I guess from my perspective, my concern is that people will leave it too long before they reach out for help. There, and, and we've said this at the beginning, you know, there's nothing wrong or weak about you. You are not broken if you need that assistance. And that's why the government, for example, has injected all that extra money into helping to provide the resources that are going to be required. And it's not going to be just for now. We're going to need these resources for the foreseeable future as, as we come out of the pandemic and move into whatever future we have before us. So I think um, anybody considering a, a career in psychology at present is never going to be out of work. <laughs> um, and I know, I know from here in, in Perth, um, the average wait time now to, to see a psychologist has blown out to several months. And I imagine it's probably similar in Victoria and elsewhere. So I think, you know, there are, there are many avenues that we can explore to get assistance. So if it's not going to be a psychologist, is it going to be a counsellor? Is it going to be a trusted friend? 
who is it that you can speak with? Because uh, that conversation in itself can be really enlightening. It's, it's interesting how when we give our thoughts and feelings a voice and we hear ourselves speak those words, it helps our brain to process them. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if we've heard, heard ourselves for the first time. And yeah. yet it's been bumbling around in our mind for, forever. But as soon as we have that conversation and we're given that gift of somebody else's attention and we can just speak, it's, it's very empowering and can often then facilitate the insight that we need to know what we want to do next and to take that next step. Jenny, I would even take it one step further and, and say that writing traditionally with a pen and paper enables your brain to think about that more clearly as well. Because what we know when we're, when we're writing with a pen and paper, we physically have to map out what we're saying before we, what we're thinking before we actually put it to, to paper. But whereas when we're typing on a computer, it's easier to backspace. And I learned that from a podcast I did with Hadley Fisher from the Resilience Agenda. And it's, it just oh, makes yes. sense. It just makes sense. You know, like you, no one wants to make a mess on their piece of paper. So they physically have to map out what they're going to say. And I, I think that's a fantastic place for reflection and, and a good place to start for anyone out there. Yeah. And this is why journaling can be so helpful where, you know, you just write down um, things that are just on your mind and you just have free flow. You just let it all pour out. Um, And the only person who's going to read that, of course, is you. But it's sometimes, like you say, can help you to process what 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 is going on in your mind. And uh, yeah, I think that sort of preemptive, what am I going to say, especially if you're You've got a bit of self-doubt about how you're going to express this because you don't want to frighten the other person or upset them. It, it can be helpful to, to write down those, those words or what you might say first. Um, so, yeah, we can, we can do it in many different ways. Yeah, definitely, Jenny. And this conversation has been incredible. I've had so many light bulbs in my brain flick off. I've absolutely loved having this conversation with you. And it's it's been incredibly insightful being able to pick your brain. But we know that 2020 has been an absolute roller coaster of a year. And, you know, we're not even done yet. We've still got three months left. So who knows what's going to happen. But I want to use this time to reflect and ask you, what is one lesson that you've learned from, you know, this potentially the most challenging year that we could be facing in our lives? Uh, Lower the bar, I think. Lower the bar. Expect less. Um, Do less. Um, Because trying to keep up with everything that we were doing before simply doesn't work. And I'm seeing people experience burnout because of that, where they're just driving themselves to try and get through everything that they think they need to. And it's not working. And of course, that's creating more stress. And then we go around in that vicious circle. So I think for me, it's definitely been lowering the bar, giving myself permission to step back and do less and just to enjoy that time out in a way that hasn't been available to me before and to reconnect to, uh, you know, Yes, like we said at the beginning, sitting out on the back deck with a nice cup of coffee, just taking in the world um, and, and being rather than doing.
Yeah, definitely. There's a real simplicity about our life at the moment. And I saw a quote the other day from Matt Haig. I'm not sure if you've heard much of him, Jenny, before, but he was saying that let's like 2020 possesses its own mental health challenges and its extreme circumstances, but let's not steer away from the fact and let's not pretend that the previously years prior to this were a mental health paradise. And it's so true. We, we constantly live this lifestyle that's heightened stress. And I feel like we've been given this opportunity to reset and, and almost be born again. You see from a nature point of view, always revert back to nature. The canals in Venice that were muddy last year, they're beautifully blue. They're see-through, there's dolphins swimming in them. And that just goes to show how amazing this time has been and how you can look at it from a, from a opportunity of growth. And, and I take great heart from the fact that our amazing planet seems to be able to heal itself so quickly, whether it's sort of reduction in smog levels or clarity of water in, in um, the waterways of Venice and things like that. I think just being able to see that has, has given us great hope as well, because I think we can learn that, you know, if we take the, the right steps, we can take better care of this fragile planet as well as ourselves. Well said there, Jenny. Now, we've been speaking for, for so long and I know we're conscious of time, but I've got a couple more questions before we wrap up the podcast. You're up to some incredible things. You're obviously the author of Thriving Minds. I'd love to know where people can buy that a little bit later on, but how do you spend your, your time at the moment, Jenny? What are you doing and, and what is your main message? At the moment, I'm working from home, um, but that's nothing new, actually. I've been working from home for about 10 years. Um, <laughs> what, what's changed is, obviously, I'm not um, travelling interstate or overseas for conferences, and I'm not pro- providing face-to-face workshops at present. Uh, and that's been interesting, too, in West Australia, because we can actually have face-to-face, but in many instances, I'm finding that... Uh, the organizations actually prefer the virtual. So that's really interesting to learn. So what I've been doing is converting what I share and teach into online courses, online presentations, seminars, I'm just doing things differently, but in more in the virtual space. And that's taught me so much too, because where before I would spend maybe half a day or a whole day talking with a group of people, it's it's all too much. So my my do less motto is break it down into smaller chunks because it's much more brain friendly. Um, so I'm I'm doing shorter pieces of work if that makes sense. And what I'm really enjoying is the the time I've had to get to speak with a number of amazing people around this planet uh, um, in the States, in Canada, in New Zealand, uh, in Singapore, in Belgium, in, in Iceland. I did a podcast from Iceland recently. Well, I How beautiful Iceland. is Iceland? I, I would love to go there. I would, lo- I would love to go there too. But yeah, I've just got this sense of we are coming together as a global community. And I think that's something I really want to work towards you know creating a stronger sense of that um, but I think very much my focus from here on in is promoting mental well-being especially which is how to thrive um, and stay sane regardless of global pandemics and to live a happy fulfilling life 
And really, it's about, I think, redefining what we see as success. And that, you know, I mentioned before that Harvard study. No, success has always been up till now something that we've couched in materialistic terms. I think, you know, it's it's time to reconsider what success really does mean to us as individuals and then to put in place those things that will help us to gain that level of success we want. Beautifully said, Jenny. I couldn't have said it better myself. You're a ball of wisdom and you're spreading such an important message. I'm so grateful I got the opportunity to pick your brain and have a have a thought-provoking, really captivating conversation with you today. And I know that the listeners would have got so much out of it. So thank you so much for people at home that have resonated with anything that you've said. Where can they get in contact with you and where can they purchase this incredible book, Thriving Mind? Easiest way to contact me is via my website, which is simply my name, drjennybrockis.com. So it's DR for doctor and Jenny with a Y. And you can obtain the book online. Uh, if you're in Australia, Booktopia um, and Amazon have it. It's also available as an ebook if you don't want the soft copy. Um, elsewhere, I know it is available online in different countries, but I can't tell you which which uh, online shops they are. But I know you can get it overseas because people have told me they've been able to buy it in Europe and in the US. So, um, yeah, I hope if anybody does buy it that they really enjoy it. And I'd love to hear from them if they do. Definitely. And I'll have those direct links in the show notes for you all. Jenny, thank you so much. Again, I've uh, really enjoyed this and I look forward to connecting and following your journey in the future. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been great. Wow, that one was something else. Jenny, your wisdom and philosophy is so inspiring and I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to sit down and pick your brain today and and listen to you break down the science behind our decision making and really provide some practical tips on how we can cultivate a thriving mind. So thank you so much again. Guys, if you enjoyed the show and you're looking for ways to support it, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the absolute world. I'm blown away by Jenny's wisdom and knowledge and the footprint that she's leaving behind on the community is just incredible and I cannot wait to follow your journey further. That's enough from me guys. I hope you enjoyed both of the episodes that were released this week. Have a wonderful weekend and I will see you next time on the Euphoria Health.